Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. And we are back for another conversation with Reverend Dr. Angie McCarty. If you missed the previous episode where we lay the foundation for this summer series about messy sex, I hope that you'll go back and listen to that first part. I think that there's some very foundational things that will help you listen with the right lens uh, so that you'll understand the heart behind these conversations that we're having. So welcome back, Angie. Thank you for being so excited about this topic. Yeah, thanks for having me. So much so that you committed your entire dissertation to really diving in deeply. So as we get started to uh, talk about your experiences as a pastor and what you were seeing in the church, some of the stories and and life journeys that people were bringing to you in the position that you were in as their spiritual guide, I want to open with this uh, story. And I want to attribute this to Linda K. Klein, who wrote a book called Pure. Pure. Isn't that the title of her book? Yeah. I met her at a conference five years ago in uh, Nashville, and I remember her telling this story. I'm pretty sure it was her. She said that if a teacher sends home a report card with a student and the parent looks at it and it is not a good grade, and the parent threatens the child and says, you've got to bring that grade up. Okay, six weeks later, the student comes back and the grade is still really low. Well, then the parent might turn up the heat and take privileges away, and you have to stay in your room and study for the next six weeks so you can get a better grade. Six weeks later, still a bad grade. But the student has been doing the work. They've been studying and turning in assignments. So the parent might feel the need to go to the teacher and ask the teacher, how are you teaching my child? Because they seem to be doing everything they're supposed to be doing, but yet they're not mastering this subject that eventually you're going to stop looking at yourself as a parent or your, your child as a student, and you're going to question the teacher's methodologies. I think that that's what we're doing with examining this whole purity movement. Yeah. Because if 90% of Christians have already had premarital sex with one another, on the day they walk down the aisle on their wedding day, maybe we haven't been teaching it right. If 80% who signed the purity pledge that they would save sex until marriage aren't able to live up to that standard that they've set for themselves, maybe we need to look at what it is that we've been teaching such that it is such an impossible standard for people to live by. So with that being said, Angie, What have you seen? What, what have you, because I know that you started out in that whole abstinence education world with me 30 years ago. What have you seen that pulled you away from that direction and in a more open-minded standpoint? Yeah. So, um, yeah, Shannon and I worked in abstinence education together in Texas, part of the Bible belt. I was the youth director at the most conservative church in the North Texas conference, uh, geographical designation, um, at the time. And so it was a very natural marriage between you and I, Shannon, uh, me and you, um, it, it gave me something to teach the youth that was relatively concrete and simple. If you don't (laughs) wrestle with the issue, then you can just tell kids, look, this is the way it is. This is the way it's supposed to be. 
So I did that for four years to the point, wait, let's see, the dedication of my dissertation. The dedication page begins to Shannon for placing me on the road to the best sex. First thing. Okay, so what I said was you dedicated your dissertation to me? I did. And then to my husband, to Jonathan, for loving me into being, to my children, and then to a few others, including my professors. So, but you were first because you were the one who kind of provided this foundation that launched me into where I am today. So after I graduated from seminary, well, as that foundation may have been, <laughs> uh, we learn a lot from our dysfunction, right? don't we? Huh? <laughs> we learn a lot from our dysfunction okay, and we put the fun back in dysfunction, didn't we? Absolutely. We, right? as two 20 something year old youth pastors, we simply did not know what we did not know. There was no alternative. I, well, that's true. What else mm -hmm. were you going to teach? And I know for me personally, it wasn't as much about, I want you to save sex until marriage. Now for me, it was about I don't want you to experience the heartache yeah. of promiscuity that I experienced from 15 to 20. Anything that they did, uh, you know, beyond that was icing on the cake. But, but yes, the, the curriculum that was most readily available to us with this true love weights movement, we just had no idea what kind of Kool-Aid we were serving up and how it was going to impact people for decades to come. Right. And it has I been do. so disheartening to learn that through the years. Mm -hmm. I want to acknowledge though, that one of the complications in teaching youth is that developmentally, they are in that critical literal phase. They need this or that they need those confines and strong boundaries. So the work that I did was primarily with the adults who went through the purity movement. I think we still have a lot of work to do on how to teach youth, um, not just sex, but relationship education. Okay. That's another thing. So, um, so that's your next seminary, big project, my next book, right. Finished seminary. And I was appointed to a church in Tucson, Arizona. Let me just tell you the culture in Tucson is way different than the Bible belt. So I was at a church that, um, golly, just, I mean, the most wonderful church and as I met people and as I started doing life with them, my construct for not having sex outside of marriage was challenged. I should go back to say that between seminary and this first appointment, I got married and he and I did wait to have sex until our wedding night. We'll fast forward to that again um, in a couple minutes. So as I'm kind of wrestling with this change in culture, not just about premarital sex, but about homosexuality and a whole bunch of other things um, that are even messier uh, messy. when it comes to what to teach. Yeah. Right. Two things. Well, three things happened. So the first one, um, I had a very, very good friend who was getting married for the first time at the age of 50. It was the best celebration ever. And before they got married, she said, okay, as my pastor, does God really expect us to wait until our wedding night to have sex? And the purity movement part of me says, well, of course, there's no determinant of age, but Black and white. hold the front door. <laughs> like 50 is a lot different than 16. That ability to reason, 
to anticipate consequences. Your frontal lobe is fully developed by 50 for almost everybody. Um, that, that our understanding of commitment is different at 50 than at a much earlier age. I understand we have to be careful when we say that, that something is one way for one age group and it's different biblically or theologically for older people, but we do that with everything. I mean, this is not, not an exception. We treat teenagers differently and teach them differently than we teach adults. We just do. Right. I got to thinking about that with her. And I ultimately said to her days later, I don't know. And that was really comforting for her. It scared me to death because I didn't know, you know, again, I didn't know what is the alternative, right? I knew. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the second experience was when my pastor was away, either on sabbatical or medical leave or something like that. And I wanted to get a little edgy and I preached on song of Solomon when he was gone one Sunday. And I thought for sure, you know, everybody's going to flip out. They're going to tell him there's going to be mutiny and nobody said anything bad. They loved it. Most of the people had never heard a sermon on song of Solomon because it's basically erotic poetry. Right. Um, or I should say one way to interpret it is erotic poetry. Yeah. I like that. eye roll. Um, so but my, my understanding is that that is the appropriate way to interpret it. It's yeah. not intended to be a metaphor between God and his bride. Uh-huh. Like there, no, it's yeah. a celebration of physical intimacy between human beings. Between two people who are not married. Exactly. And you know what? Most people miss that. Uh-huh. But yes, the Shulamite woman and, the, and her uh-huh. lover, like they're not married to each other. And right. yet they're exchanging all these really oh, colorful, God. metaphorical. So hot for each other. It's like yeah. Bridgerton in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> yes. A lot of sexual energy flowing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Love it. So after this sermon, a man who was probably in his eighties came up to me, tears streaming down his face. He was the sweetest man. And I thought, oh God, I've offended him so badly. And he came up to me and he said, making love to my wife for the last 60 years has been the most beautiful thing I have ever known or experienced but because the church never talked about it being a good and beautiful thing, I always felt guilty about it. And you've released me from that today. Sad is that. I know. But how empowering as a pastor to hear 80 years old, tears in his eyes, finally got liberated from guilt that he had no business holding on to. False guilt, Satan's favorite strategy right right there. Right. Okay. Third thing. In 2013, I learned that my husband, who I had waited for, we had waited for each other. Um, We had done everything right, according to our sexuality, before we got married. I learned that he was having an affair. And the first person I called um, in that was Shannon Etheridge. And I don't think that we had really had much contact other than Christmas cards for like 10, 15 years. Well, we had been out to visit you guys in Arizona. That's right. But yeah. it had been a while. Yeah, it, it had, had been, been a while. while. And my um, heart sunk as someone who got to sit on the sidelines and watch you and 
your former husband's relationship yeah. develop and blossom and grow, my heart just, it bled for you. Yeah. That wasn't was, part of the story. That it wasn't supposed, supposed to happen. Be part of the story. Right. Because we were supposed, our marriage was supposed to be blessed right. and, and not just the affair, but for the course of our marriage for 14 years at that point, sex had been really difficult. Sexual pleasure had been difficult. Um, we didn't talk about sex. It was just this kind of taboo that we couldn't approach. And, um, and I don't blame him wholly for that. I certainly played a part in all of this. So eventually about a year after two years after I learned of the affair, I, um, we were divorced and I, all of a sudden had to start thinking about sex again. And what, how was I, was I going to have sex? If I met someone that I wanted to marry, would we have sex? Um, what is marriage? How far is too far? You know, like all these questions that I hadn't asked since I was 25 years old. Mm -hmm. um, so 15 years. And, and the big question of will, will I do it the same way that I did it the first time right. or will I choose to do it differently? Right. I had the same question. Right. As a United Methodist pastor, we have all taken vows to celibacy and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. So that added another oh, extra layer pressure of complication, right? That is an ordination vow. Mm -hmm. It's also an ordination vow that we would um, not be in debt so far as to embarrass ourselves, but many people come out of seminary with a whole lot of debt. So, you know, we kind of laugh through that one. Yeah. Um, so then I met, I met Jonathan and he was a member of the church of the resurrection or a member of the staff of the church of the resurrection. And their entire staff had a staff covenant that adopted that ordination vow as well. And thankfully he and I were able to have really open conversations examining why we believe what we believe about sex. So many times we go through life and we just exist with these beliefs, not knowing where they came from. Maybe mm -hmm. they came from our parents. Maybe they came from the church of our childhood. Maybe they came from a TV show that we watched that really resonated with us. Maybe it came from a book. So examining why we believe what we believe was a beautiful exercise for us, but that was the, this primary situation, those three, but the primary situation in, um, in meeting and falling in love with Jonathan that latched me onto this whole exploration of how to speak to congregations uh, with authenticity, with um, proper biblical interpretation, and to really try to find an alternative so that when those youth directors or really when pastors uh, talk about sexuality, well, first of all, they have to talk about sexuality, right? <laughs> Yeah, Which, that's not a, not a common thing. You don't find thing. that in a lot of churches. You, you don't. don't. Um, but when they talk about it, how can they talk about it in a different way than, well, just don't do it before you're married. Because as a pastor, you're looking out on your congregation, knowing that about 90% of them had sex before they were married. And, and, and how so can you, how can you preach from a standpoint of relevance at all, if you're going to gloss over that reality and assume right. that everyone is doing what they were told. Everyone is yeah. colored. Everyone has colored inside the prescribed lines. Right. Yeah. Right. 
How has right. that worked for us? And if they haven't, and you say, well, God forgives you for that. You're going to have a lot of people out there who say, wait, I don't think I have anything to be forgiven for mm-hmm. that sex with this person was phenomenal. It was beautiful. It was, was giving. Cons- it was consensual. It yes. was holy. It was sacred. It was foundation laying. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Whether or not that relationship ended in marriage or not. Right. Right. Um, so those are some of the things I think that we have missed and we're still missing when we talk about sex in the church. So Angie, I heard a conversation on a podcast called Holy Smokes, but your pastors sitting around smoking cigars, drinking an alcoholic beverage of choice. I think that was to kind of level the playing field and make them sound, yeah, sound approachable by the common people. And there was a female, I forgot her name, but she was a biblical scholar and she was a guest on the show that day. And she talked about the word fornication because we had been told over and over throughout our entire lives, if we grew up in church, that fornication was the big sin that you should avoid and that we assumed that fornication was any sexual, anything that produced sexual energy. So kissing, heavy petting, touching below the earlobes, you know, like there's all these things that we associated with fornication that made us walk on eggshells, but, but it probably eventually made us just throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, forget it. I'm just going to do it. Screw it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Screw it. Just screw it. Uh, literally. But her research of the word fornication was that whenever it is used in scripture, there is always an element of force or abuse, manipulation, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So molestation, incest, rape. Pedophilia. Prostitution. Pedophilia and prostitution. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, unpack with us. Yeah. What does the Bible specifically say about sex and sexuality and what does it not say that we've read into it so we were playing this game with my family last week called quelf it's hysterical and one of the rules that was applied to the game was that i had to read all of the cards as a um as a charismatic preacher i mean it was hysterical that i drew that card so i'm going to go back to the game of quelf and i am going to read as a charismatic pastor some passages Okay. Okay. We're going to use the NIV. Okay. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men will inherit the kingdom of God. Was that ominous? That That was laden. That was laden. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. That was uh, first Corinthians six, nine through 10. And then first Corinthians six, 18 flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Uh, Galatians, the acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, debauchery, um, Ephesians, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is honorable. That one was first Thessalonians. So, um, there are others too, but, um, if you are any kind of scholar who wrote those, 
we've got Romans, First Corinthians, Thessalonians, um, Ephesians. They're all written by Paul. Paul. Yeah. What, I wanted to say that if anyone was listening or watching body language, I just want to make sure that people hear me loud and clear. I am not mocking. We are not mocking scripture. Right. We hold scripture in very high regard. The mocking part was about how we have taken these scriptures to an extreme and applied them to culture today in a way that I don't think that God ever intended. That was the marketing part, not scripture itself. I agree. So, and the, the super yes. fun game that my family played that everyone should yeah, play. It's it, well, exactly. Yeah. So, so the, yeah. the, ergo, the charismatic em emphasis yes. on those yes. syllables. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yes, it was Paul. So, it was Paul who was not was even Paul. married. Paul. Correct. And the Greek word that is used in each of those instances and others in scripture is the word pornea. We get our word pornography from it. Mm -hmm. And I believe that in order to understand what Paul was addressing was, has to be considered within a cultural context. So Rome, Corinth, Thessaloniki, Ephesus, for I'm thinking for. I'm thinking Roman orgies. Yes. <laughs> yes. So the Greco-Roman culture was highly sexualized. You only have to look at their artwork to figure that out, right? Sure. And within that culture, well, within Jesus's culture, he was completely countercultural, right? I mean, he was against the occupying force. So it makes sense that Paul would also be countercultural. He was writing to these churches, telling them to flee sexual immorality and sexual immorality or pornea for him was something very specific. It's what was happening in the moment. So it was very common because wives were property to a husband for a husband to go to a brothel, to take on a prostitute, to take on a, a Lover is not the right word because it didn't have an emotional a mistress, to, a mistress, a, a sex slave, really. Right. Um, right. Concubine. Concubine. So if we think that that was the norm of society, um, and the other um, part that was very common in um, Greek and Roman temples and temple worship was pedophilia, adult men with young boys. Um, none of us are going to say that that's okay. No. Um, that Paul was writing to a specific people in a specific context, addressing what was happening at the time. And so to make a jump from pedophilia, prostitution, concubines to or orgies, orgies just, it, just rampant exactly. sex to kissing to you shouldn't put your hand on your girlfriend's thigh in the back seat of your car because it's right. going to cause you to burn with lust right. when you want to marry her someday and spend a lifetime making love to her but yet kissing her might be too much like how did yeah. we go from that to what was preached in the purity movement right we created that we were the ones who were seeking control, because remember, we're coming out of Woodstock and free love. 
we're seeking control. We are seeking genuine safety for our youth. Um, yes. Yes. We, our hearts were in the right place. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yep. We are trying to lower the teenage pregnancy rate. Right. And so, so we will expand this to include all acts, all sexual acts before marriage. So here's where it gets really messy. I was going to say sticky, but let's, let's stick with messy. <laughs> the theme that where is the line, right? Where I am not advocating that, that we go back to Woodstock, that we just have sex right. with whoever we want, whenever we want. Um, <laughs> we're we, not interested in re a return to the hippie movement we shave our armpits right <laughs> <laughs> yes i do um in my legs yes but we know that relationships must have boundaries in order for them to be healthy now as a married woman my boundary is marriage and i'm so happy with that um that both my husband and i know that this is our boundary it's easily identifiable. Uh -huh. You know who your intimate partner is and you uh -huh. know that to share that sexual energy with another human being would be detrimental to the relationship you're trying most to protect. That for me, that's, that, that's the bottom line is it's right. human nature. Right. It, it's, it's human nature that if I share my sexual energies with another human being, that is going to threaten the integrity and the strength mm -hmm. of my relationship with Charlie. So Charlie is the only person I exchange that sexual energy with. And so when you're not married, the question is, what can you do? Hmm. And, and people would be all over the board on this. You can touch, you can kiss, but no penetration anywhere. Um, and then others would say, wait, if you're an adult in a mutually respectful, consensual relationship and your sexual expression and interaction with each other is life-giving, then does that not enhance your relationship? Now, hmm, implicit in this conversation, we have to mention marriage and the definition of marriage, right? And, right. and I think we're up to about episode 73 now that we'll <laughs> get into um, <laughs> that biblical marriage. I despise that phrase, oh. the biblical view of marriage. Really? Which one? Now they would say Adam and Eve. Well, how do we know they were married? They didn't do anything that signifies or defines a marriage in our culture right they didn't have a big party they didn't, they didn't no exchange ceremony, dress that we know of no right? ceremony there was no cake come on there was no license and in our culture the only thing that defines whether or not a couple is married is whether or not they have a license mm. so stick with me here mm-hmm so the church says no sex before marriage. The state is the entity that defines what marriage is or that you are married. So the church has given the state the power to say when it's okay to have sex. 
Well, here's the thing that my human sexuality professor, Dr. David Lawson, threw out is the idea that sex is only healthy in a marriage relationship is asinine because we all, as pastors and counselors, know many really dysfunctional marriages where, quite frankly, one of the partners is the abuser and the other yes. one is the abusee. And so I, I would have to argue that in certain relationships, the intimacy that a that a unmarried couple is having is healthier than the, I couldn't even call it intimacy, than the sexual abuse that's taking place inside yeah. that marriage. So th that turns the whole paradigm on its head right there. Right. And I'll address that more in our next episode when I talk a little bit more about our research. Okay. So how do we know what we can do outside of marriage? <laughs> Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Exactly. Or right. Or not. I, I can't answer that. Mm. I can't prescribe that. I know what I feel I could do in in a relationship or, I mean, outside of a relationship, I'm still right. a sexual person outside of a relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and I took very seriously wanting to honor God with my sexuality in that space in between marriages. And it was hard and I wrestled with it and I wondered and I prayed and I talked to trusted advisors um, because I wanted to take the Bible seriously. Mm. And in the way that I understood the Bible to read, um, in light of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Right. Um, and that I think scares the church to death mm -hmm. because the church wants hard and fast answers. Right. So now we can check the box there. Okay. I'm sexually holy. Okay. I prayed this many times a day. Okay. I took communion newsflash friends, Christianity is about a relationship. It moved away from the legalism of Judaism when Jesus came and gave right. life and gave it abundantly. And so sex and messy sex exists within, um, within the context of a relationship with God first and foremost. Um, but so if you come to me and you say, Hey, can I have sex with this person? I I'm going to say, I don't know. I can listen. I can ask some reflective questions to help you figure that out. But, um, but ultimately I don't think that I have that answer. Cause you know what? I'm not God. And you're not that other person. Your, your conscience, yeah. maybe your guide, but their conscience needs to be their God. And I know that people have wondered, you know, well, what did Shannon do when she got remarried? And so I, I'm just going to let everyone know about the conversation that Charlie and I had is I let him know that number one, um, that the first third, I had read this article that the first 30 days of a relationship really sets the tone. And that if a couple is sexual within that first 30 days, the chances of them still being together a year later was only like 10%. Like it was dismal, the, the, you know, the odds. So I made it very clear that we were going to take it slow 
and I wanted 30 days just to get to know each other and build a bond and become really good friends and talk about futures and, and make sure that we felt compatible. And then there were certain things that I wanted to only experience together as husband and wife, but there was this big middle ground here that I wanted to experience with Charlie because I felt like making sure that there was some sort of sexual chemistry where we knew that we could be desirous of one another. And mm -hmm. quite frankly, if you never kiss, if you never hold hands, if you never make out, if, if you never do the things that get your motor running, then you really don't know how you feel about intimacy mm -hmm. with that person. But here's the thing. I, we didn't get hung up. It, it wasn't like a black and white, um, you know, this is how it's going to be or else we have to break up or confess to a pastor or something right. like that. It was more of an internal moral compass of this is just mm -hmm. who we know ourselves to be. And Charlie knew that, it, that my standards were probably far more important to me than, than his were necessarily because of what I do for a living. Sure. And I, I, thought, yeah. I didn't want to feel like a hypocrite that I didn't want mm -hmm. to feel as if I was telling people one thing and then doing another type of a thing. So he honored that. And he actually said, if you prefer to save all sexual activity until marriage, I'm willing to do that for you. And I just said, that is not what I feel like is best for me as a 50 year old woman. It's not what I feel like is best for us who have previous relationships, I want to know that there is chemistry between the two of us. Mm -hmm. And so we, we may, you know, experience these things, but then these things we're going to save as until we're husband and wife. And there was, we weren't 15. We didn't sign right. pledge certificates. It was just, we were conducting the relationship in a way that we were each being our authentic selves yeah. and showing respect for the other person and who they were, because it was a mutually agreed upon. It was a, it was a series of conversations because yeah. Charlie had said, if we're not having sex, we're having lots of conversations about sex. Yes. Like, and, and I celebrated that. I totally celebrated that, that there's nothing that I feel as if we can't talk about, if we're going to be sex partners for life, you bet we're going to be talking about a whole lot of it, all of it, any of the above. So what do you think about the purity movement's uh, impact on people's ability to even talk these things through in a relationship, to have these conversations prior to committing to a lifetime together? Yeah, I think that it really stunts people's abilities to have conversations because how do you know what to talk about, right? So much of talking to your partner is, well, I know that this feels good and this doesn't, or, um, or this circumstance, or this is what I imagine, or these are my fantasies, or, I mean, just all of these topics that weren't allowed to be discussed. It and if you taboo. go, yes, if you go an entire lifetime up until your marriage, thinking that sex is a shameful act, even though we give lip service to it being God created, um, then there is no light switch that all of a sudden the veil is lifted and we can suddenly talk openly and honestly about sex. It, it doesn't work that way. And yeah, so I think that that that's an even wider, um, a wider blanket of what has been covered up by this purity movement, just our ability to even talk about sex and, and having a context for understanding what a healthy sexual relationship looks like, uh, because it's not like we ever taught that 
that this is, this is the design of a healthy relationship. It was don't have sex until you're married and then your marriage will be blessed. Which we really sold them a crock. (laughs) Uh And I'm not saying that God doesn't bless marriages, but he does not dole out blessings based on what you did or didn't do. It just doesn't work that way. And it drives me crazy that we ever thought that way, but if we taught that, if we were taught that way, we thought that way. And if we Mm -hmm. thought that way, we taught that way. And so Mm -hmm. it it has been a very interesting system that we were a part of and uh, our indoctrination into it, our indoctrinating others into it. But I'm so grateful that you and I have evolved into a much higher level of understanding about who we are as sexual beings created in the image of God, who is also Mm -hmm. a sexual being. Uh, And people get weirded out by that. Oh, God's not sexually active. He doesn't have a wife. I'm not talking about sexual activity and marriage. I'm talking about if we are made in the image of God and we are made as spiritual beings and we are made as sexual beings, then God is sexual. There's no other way around it. It is embodiment theology. And I'll get into that in our next episode. Okay. Way to tease them to tune in next time. Uh, I'm amazed at how fast the time flies when we dive into these really deep topics and get messy together. Kind of reminds you of our time in the jello pool, right? It does. Such fond (laughs) memories with you, Shannon. You knew where I was going to go. I knew exactly where you were going. And now our listeners' minds are in the gutter. Uh Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, We're just going to end it at that. Okay. All right. Just as a reminder, if some of these conversations are striking a deep chord in you and you want to reach out for some one-on-one coaching, uh, either as an individual or as a couple, I hope you will go to shannonethridge.com and click on that coaching link. Also check out the workshops link while you're there. We offer uh, women at the well workshops or couples at the well workshops. You can watch the videos posted there and shoot us an email and let us know if you have any questions. We thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. We love you for listening. Thank you for tapping on us. 